And now it's time for the podcast, Sustainable Dad. Joining us today is a chef, Scott Gooding, who has a brand new book out called uh, The Sustainable Diet. He joins us right now. Top of the morning to you, Scott. Oh, top of the morning to you, Doug. How are you? Not too bad at all, sir. Um, mate, um, new book about sustainable eating. Can you tell us a little bit about the heartbeat behind writing this? Yeah, I guess it's born out of looking at the global population. You know, ne- never in the history of mankind have we been so populated, but also never been so ill with sort of, you know, epidemics of obesity and diabetes. Despite advancements in technology, um, farming practices, diagnosing, treatment, all that. So we should be heading in a positive direction, but we're actually going backwards. So I've been a proponent of eating real food, natural food for the last 10 years. And so now I think we need to delve a little bit deeper. We need to peel back the layers of, of that discussion and really understand where our food comes from. To me, there's two real distinct food systems. One is the sustainable food system, the regen food system. The other is the intensive. And I'm sure we've seen all the documentaries of the last sort of five or six years on, on Netflix that shine a, a pretty bright light on that intensive um, approach to farming. But sadly, it's that approach, which is sort of a, a morphed version of farming. It's a, often a grotesque version of farming where we've lost connection with the land, the soil, the animals, that's the, the dominant food system. So the book is about peeling back the layers, understanding where we get our food from, why is it important to support more sustainable, more regen versions of farming from a human health perspective, from an environmental health perspective, and also an animal welfare perspective. I think things get challenging when it comes to food because I I kind of tend to default to a fairly monochromatic palette because I just got access to everything all year round. Um, and so the idea of, you know, like seasonally things have to change on the, on the menu is a little bit daunting because I like two pieces of toast and, uh, you know, a, a bit of peanut butter on that every morning. But yeah. I, I wonder if that does lead to some of those health problems. What you're describing is sort of symptomatic of most people in the industrialised world where we get our, our nutrients from almost a handful of uh, food sources or ingredients. There's some sort of alarming stat in the in the states that an average American gets their nutri- nutrients from about four or five staples, which is sort of sugar, wheat, barley, and corn. And that doesn't really support human health. It doesn't support environmental health because chances are that corn or that or that sugar or that wheat is in a food system that doesn't support the environment and the ecology. And so that has a trickle down effect in waterways, in marine life. Um, you're degrading the soil over, you know, multiple harvests. But they reckon we've got about 60 years or 60 harvests left uh, before the, the soil across most of the workable land uh, around the world is, is untenable. So we, we need to make decisions about where we're getting our food from today if we're not already uh, and really support the, the approach to farming that does have connection to the soil, does have connection to the land, um, supports and fosters and considers animal welfare and animal husbandry. So almost a throwback to, you know, where farming started from. It's only in the last sort of 100 years that intensive farming sort of really ramped up. Um, But, yeah, we we definitely need to start to peel back those layers. What does it look like, though, for an end consumer? Because, I I mean, I'm not... (sighs) 
I don't feel like I'm a very savvy in understanding where my food comes from. So if I want to move yeah. towards a sustainable diet, where are the starting places for me? Probably if you choose to eat meat or fish or both, uh, your starting point with those guys is asking your local butcher, asking your fishmonger, or if it's, you know, if you don't have access to those sort of local outlets, you only have access to your woolies or your coals, then peruse the aisle because although they're the, the bigger players, they are starting to, to listen to this conversation, this groundswell. And so there is free range, there is organic. Um, and sure, it does come with a, a slightly higher price tag. It does have a positive ripple effect for, for the land, for the animal, for human health. So, yeah, the first port of call, if you choose to eat, eat meat or fish, would be to ask your fishmonger or butcher. And just start to ask the questions, start to read labels, start to understand what certain labels such as, you know, free range or organic or biodynamic or, you know, or there's lots of sort of tag words that really start to understand and read up on what, what they all mean and how much significance they have. Scott, I was I was kind of pretty fascinated because I jump on your uh, website, Scott Gooding Project, and um, mm. I see like you got a, some great salads, but then there's a giant burger as your your front page. <laughs> and oftentimes, when I talk to CSIRO scientists, they're not necessarily saying stop eating meat, but just be aware that the way we're consuming meat right now is unsustainable. Um, and then kind of treat it like a, a special food rather than a regular part of our diet. Yeah, I mean, maybe that logo is a, a, a tad misleading and it's something that I... No, I love you know. burgers. Keep it there, mate. It's great. <laughs> uh, who doesn't? I, I think these are broad brushstrokes, but I think generally speaking across the Western world, we, we probably eat too much protein, mm-hmm. particularly in, in the United States. Um. But it's also where that beef has come from, which is the important question. Is it raised in a feedlot environment mm-hmm. uh, where it's contributing to greenhouse gas? Or is it in a um, more natural setting? Are you mimicking nature? So so a, a cow uh, left to its own devices is a, is a, is a herd animal. So if, if they're in the wild, they'll be herding and packing together because they're, you know, So when you mimic that in a farming environment, it's what you call sort of cell grazing or mob, uh, mow and move. So you pack them together so they're almost shoulder to shoulder in in a small sort of cell. um, And that removes the luxury and the freedom for them to go and pick all the sweet grass. Mm -hmm. It means that they have to eat as they're going, they're pooing, they're, they're weeing, so they're constantly moving, so they're fertilising the ground that they've just um, eaten from. But also constantly mowing that vegetation keeps it in the vegetative state, and that's the optimal state that it needs to be to photosynthesise and sequester the carbon into the soil. So there's, there's actually, a, I don't know whether you've come across a fantastic man by the name of Alan Savory. Mm-hmm. He's a... He's a Zimbabwean um, ecologist, environmentalist, and he's done a lot of work through those big swathes of land that probably occupy about two-thirds of the world's uh, potential agricultural land. Um, and it's been mismanaged through poorly managed livestock. It's, it's desertified. It's untenable at the moment. 
but his uh, proposal is that if you put on livestock, you know, cows, sheep, and you manage them in a way that mimics nature, you can actually reverse the desertification of those lands into tenable lands uh, to the point where you're sequestering enough carbon to get back to pre-industrialised levels. Right. So those lands right across the equator, right across Africa, into Asia, uh, even the States, like at the moment, they're not, they're actually sort of contributing to greenhouse gas. Yeah. But, but if you, as I said, if you mimic nature, then there's an opportunity to actually sort of sequester that through, you know, keeping vegetation in a vegetative state. Uh, that whole mentality of, of cell grazing and, and mob move, sorry, mob move, move can actually help to, to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, I thought it was one of the fascinating things that came out in Damon Gamow's um, documentary 2040 was this idea mm. of um, farming practices that leverage multiple plantings in the off-season to help regenerate the soil, like a regenerative... Yeah. I, I never pronounce it right. The regenerative oh, no, I... gardening <laughs> practice. I'm glad I've met someone else that struggles with that word. Oh, too. seriously. But <laughs> it was like... It made sense when the guy, the farmer was like, no, you just plant a bunch of stuff that would usually be in the environment and it promotes the birds to come back and suddenly you've right. got an environment where, you, you know, you're you're not just supporting um, the local flora and, but also the fauna. So you're getting all these yeah. new animals coming in that do great stuff for the soil in terms of aeration. And I just, 100%. you just like, oh, yeah, actually just planting one type of crop in a giant slab wouldn't yeah. feel helpful, and why didn't we pick up on this? Sadly, that intensive version of farming that, that's run rampant over the last you know, 50, 100 years, and you do get monocropping, and as a consequence of that, you know, um, habit, habitat is lost, you know, hedgerows, bushes, trees get wiped out, as well as, you know, obviously the, the, the fauna that occupy that space. So the, the flip side to that, as you're suggesting, is where you do mimic nature because nature, when you leave it to, your, to its own devices, does promote biodiversity, which is exactly what you're talking about. So a lot of the regen farmers that I interviewed for the, for the book do very simple practices like leave the borders of the paddocks untouched, whereas, whereas you could go right up to the fence line um, and occupy, you know, get, get the biggest yield but if you leave those borders untouched, it promotes grasses, it promotes bushes, it shrubs. And within that given time, you've got nesting birds and rodents. And so monoculture, monocropping doesn't exist in nature. When you leave it to its own devices, that one species doesn't dominate for, you know, one, two, three, four kilometres, you know, as we see in the United States or even domestically with one crop, be it corn, barley, wheat, whatever it is, that, that doesn't happen in nature. All you're doing is stripping the, the soil of its nutrients, which over time, you know, that doesn't help us, doesn't help uh, the ecology and, and the bacteria in the soil. So you we, know, can learn, we can learn a lot from our, our predecessors, you know, our forefathers. That, and, and, and it's not to say that the regen version or the sustainable version hasn't been going on the whole time in parallel it's just not been celebrated for for the for the potential and positive outcomes that it can can lead to we just need to like like our like our nutrition and our and our cooking we need to sort of swing that pendulum back towards what our ancestors have been doing for tens of thousands of years yeah i was going to say because i think it's a judeo 
Christian practice, like in the Old Testament, there's a conversation where he says, don't don't harvest the field to the borders, but to leave a margin in every field so that, you know, yeah, the, right. the ox has something to feed on, but also right. for the refugee and for the sojourner and for the widow that they have something to collect. And you think yeah. this is something that has been established for thousands of years. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we're just now revisiting and going, oh, maybe there's some logic to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because because that, that's the biggest test of time. Like that, you know, we're looking at thousands of years in that particular case. But when we're looking at intensive version of farming, we've only got a short um, lens to look at, and it's about 100 years. Um, and sadly, for, for you and I, we're living in a world where that's the convention, that's the status quo. But really, historically, the status quo has been the regen version and promoting biodiversity. And maybe they didn't know the science behind it, but they knew that it, it, it produced the yield to feed the, the family, to feed the village, to feed the community. Brilliant. Mate, so I think, you know, as, as I reflect on everything you said, I, I get a sense that the real simple steps, the way we start is, the first question is, where is it sourced from? And is it local? Is it sustainable? Is it biodynamic? Are really three very important things to be asking. Maybe one before that, which is sort of echoing what I've been talking about for the last 10 years, is crowding out as best you can the processed food. So start with with natural. Yep. Start with fresh. Uh, And then once you're sort of comfortable playing around in the kitchen with, with unprocessed natural foods and they're, you know, it's not to say that you can't have processed foods, but the, the more natural food and unprocessed foods that you have on your plate uh, every day, every week, the better you're setting yourself up to success. Once you're there, once you've positioned yourself there, then dive a little bit deeper and get invested into where that broccoli or that salmon or those mussels or you know, that ribeye or that lamb shoulder, where that has come from. Because it does matter. It does matter for a number of levels. It matters for human health. It matters for environmental health and animal welfare. I mean, and we've, we've all seen those horrific documentaries on Netflix that are very sort of pro, yeah. pro-vegan and, and anti-meat, and they shine a light on a particular methodology and a particular approach to farming and, and good on them. I think that definitely needs uh, to be highlighted because it's abhorrent and it's, um, it's actually, you know, we're going to look back on this time uh, and be horrified at how we treated our animals, you know, our pigs, our cows, our chickens. Mm. But those documentaries, they're great on one hand, but what they fail to do is, is shine a light on all aspects of farming. It's the, that modality and that, attitude to, to animal husbandry isn't indicative of the whole industry. Yeah. There are some great examples in Australia, uh, fewer examples in the US, sadly, but there are some great farmers here on our doorstep that do care about the quality of their produce. And in order to do that, they do care about their animals and how what they're eating, you know, how they're treated, how they're killed. You know, you, ultimately, you can't get away from that. Ultimately, an animal has to die to provide that protein. Yeah. Um, you can't get around that. But if you choose to eat meat, support a farmer that allows that animal to live a life as close to nature as possible. I guess what's worth throwing in is there was a great, great study by Professor Mike, Mike Archer. Through his research, sort of concluded that if you're a vegan, so you've chosen to abolish 
meet for a number of reasons, but a lot of the motivation is often down to animal cruelty. So you, you, you're not invested in supporting uh, death of sentient beings. Yep. Professor Mike Archer um, has stated that if you're getting most of your protein from, let's say, wheat, and that source is from an intensive version of farming, you'd be responsible for 55 times more sentient deaths because of that removal of the hedgerows and the bushes, because of that extermination of rats and mice for that wheat production and harvesting and storage, uh, the reptiles, the insects, the ground-nesting birds, the, the deer, all those sentient beings are being killed as a result of that manufacturing, that production of that wheat. Right. So what, it's, it's a very interesting discussion. So I, I talk about this in the book. I talk about, I, I set it all up uh, in a way that I, I start talking about the uh, historically, you know, where we've come from, where we're at now. And is veganism the answer? Mm. Is veganism the solution to human health, environmental health, uh, and the reduction of death of sentient beings? And I honestly don't feel that that's um, the best outcome for any of those things. And in fact, as Professor Mike Archer suggested, you'd be responsible for more deaths as a result of all those sentient beings I've described. Fascinating. On the plus yeah. side, I do like a good burger, so I feel like... I can, you know, like if I'm doing it right, I can still get away with the occasional piece of red meat, white meat, whatever colour. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we're we're very fortunate in this country that most of our cattle is grass fed and grass finished. Yeah. Um, but if we don't keep a check on that, you know, those numbers could diminish. We we do have feedlot cattle in Australia, um, and they do. They only, it's only about 20% of the livestock, but they contribute about 40%, 40% to 50% of the actual uh, meat in the market. Conversely, in the States, it's about 90% feedlot. Same with dairy um, and same with chickens. Chickens have, uh, can have, I should say, can have a pretty ordinary life. Yeah. Um, you know, 80% of the antibiotics uh, in, in the US are fed to livestock, growth hormone. If you put livestock in such close proximity, uh, no access to, to, to graze, no access to natural foods that they would eat in the wild, you know, these, these poor guys are, are, are pissing in where they're standing. And so it becomes this breeding ground for bacteria, E. coli, salmonella. And so you're constantly having to feed antibiotics and growth hormone to, to maintain normal health. Yeah. Uh, and that's a sad state of affairs. And there's this other thing, so I'm, I'm rambling a bit now, but um, there's this other practice called a rumen fistula where a vet or a farmer will will craft out a hole in the side of a cow's stomach. And so that has this permanent hole in the flank of the cow. That allows the vet or the, the farmer to have instant access to the one of the cow's stomachs to assess its health. Oh. So, so the the... The motivation to do it is well intended, I'm sure, because they want to keep keep a check on the, the health of the cow. And if its health is poor, then they can do something about it. Or if the health of the neighbouring cow is poor, then they can take the, the good bacteria and the good uh, mulch from the gut into that cow. So it's it's kind of well intentioned, but I just think the 
that whole practice, putting a permanent hole in the side of a cow, is just it's not wrong. It should. Yeah. We're going to look back at these times. I'm sure. I'm confident. I'm. Uh, I'm positive. We'll look back and go, "What the hell were we doing to these animals?" Well, I think if I, I keep on having this thought coming back to me recurringly, is that like the the way that sustainability becomes more popular is if a consumer demands yeah. it. Then, because of capitalism, the market will provide it. So, if you say, no, what I want is a cow that's been ethically raised, well looked after, and I'm willing to pay a little bit extra for it, and I'm not interested in anything else, markets respond to that, right? And it's the same for everything, right? Like Like, if we just leave food to a side and say, it's buildings, it's cars, it's roads, it's whatever you want to think of it is if suddenly you've got a whole bunch of consumers lining up and say, we want this and we can't find it anywhere and we're willing to pay a little bit extra, suddenly the market corrects, the price comes down, it makes it more available for everything and then it becomes the norm. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. It's it's simple economics, I I guess. Yeah. I mean, one farmer I spoke to um, in the Sydney region seemed to think that even if all things were equal, we probably wouldn't get, you know, organic grass-fed, grass-finished beef to the same price as we see for for feedlock beef. No, you won't. Just, but if we're willing to pay it, yeah, then we just pay the inflate, and it might mean we eat it less. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, the, the, with all that you've said, I, I believe the price would come down through through just increased demand. Um, but we probably won't get a price match or anything like that. But I, I don't think that's what you're suggesting, anyway. Yeah, but it's it's um, the difference between buying a can, a prepackaged can of lentils that I don't know where it comes from, or yeah. going down to a local organic produce store and picking up some fresh lentils that I'm going to actually, you know, yeah, do myself. That's more yeah. expensive, but it's better yeah. for me. Yeah, and also, you know, it's worth throwing in the the nutrient density of, let's say, a you know, we talk, keep talking about a burger, but, you know, a, a burger patty or, you know, a, a liver or a kidney, the nutrient density of that, that food outstrips any um, plant-based protein. Yeah. Now, that's not to say I, I don't prescribe to a, a carnivore diet. Actually, my, my, if, if I had to sort of label it, it's a plant-based diet, but I eat meat. Yeah. You know, we, we need to eat um, plants. You know, we we don't eat enough veggies in this country, and, and probably across the industrialised world, which probably contributes to a lot of the problems. Hmm. So I'm not saying don't eat veggies. Quite the opposite. We need to we need to crowd our plate full of veggies. We need to celebrate veggies. We need to hero the veggies, and al- almost have your protein as a condiment. Ooh. Sadly, in Australia, we've sort of got that flipped on its head, where we sort of celebrate the snag or the the lamb chop or the steak and the side salad or the all the veggies get a bit of a, a raw deal, so to speak. They don't get a look in. But if we flip that on its head and we, and we, we crowd our plates full of fresh, colourful veggies and salad items, then that's when you're teeing yourself up for success. And the sustainable part of that is that if you can do it today, tomorrow, next week, next month, and you know, ideally for the rest of your days. Because your, your, health is, your health is determined by what you do most of the time over the longest period of time. Yeah, that's good. Scott, well, listen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us, mate. New book, uh, Sustainable Diet. When's it out? Uh, It was out two days ago. Brilliant. So go get yourself a copy now. Mate, thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
No worries. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Doug. No worries, mate. Okay, so the thing I think is important with the Scott Gooding uh, book is that it's not necessarily about the diet, but it's about the foods that we make a choice with. Um, I, I was startled to find out about 33%, like one third of all food produced ends up in waste. Now, there are a lot of good agencies that redistribute food that comes very close to its use by best before date um, to families in need. Um, But the reality is, too, there is a giant shipping container in the loading dock of most uh, supermarkets that you can actually raid for food. In in the time we were in Maricopa, we actually went and raided a lot of them. They're, they're really neat. They're really tidy. And the amount of high-quality food that is in them is startling. And so my encouragement would be, even beyond sustainability, is that there's a lot of food that you can rescue from the backs of supermarkets. And it's dumpster diving. Yeah, that's what it is. But there is good, fantastic food absolutely going to waste one of the uh, local uh, redistribution places run by liana called uh, um, the pantry said that within this within their organization they have redistributed about 10 to fifteen thousand dollars worth of food a week that would have been thrown out and this is not a particularly big organization there's about 10 volunteers that work it and there's three fridges but that gives you the magnitude and scale of the food that is just being thrown out and unused so great great encouragement think about sustainable diets sustainable food sustainable eating but also there's plenty of food that can be rescued and it's right in your back door Well, that's it for me, for Sustainable Dad. I hope this was helpful. And don't forget, please share this with your friends. If you like this, give it a like, give it a rating. Uh, Apologies for all the construction work in the background, but my house is under renovation right now as I try to build a sustainable home for a new future. Thanks. See you later.